Hello and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard, vocational minister, that sounds ridiculous, staff pastor, a little less ridiculous, pastor at Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. I am blessed to be in Christian ministry full-time through the support of this church body. would love for you to come visit us sometime if you live in the Payson, Utah area. We have people from down south of Nephi all the way up to Provo. So uh, if you're in our area, we'd love to meet you. Or if you are looking for a church in your area, I'd love to be able to help you with that. Even if you're not in Utah, I have had to look up churches in various places many times before for when our people are traveling or when our people move or whatever the case may be. And um, yeah, we'd love to help you out if you're looking for a church. I, I could serve you in that way and make myself available to you. So reach out through Facebook or wherever, our website, and let me know. But if you are local, would love to meet you. We gather on Sundays at 9.30 and 10.45. We put our services on YouTube live, and uh, after they run live, we whittle them down to just the sermon. So if you wanted to check out our sermons, you can go to our YouTube page. Just look for Orchard Hills Bible Church on YouTube, and you can find us there. But today we are continuing our study through the New Testament and looking at just a really big overview of what we have in the New Testament. Today we come to Mark chapter 9 with what I think will be a pretty quick lesson, pretty short lesson, looking at Mark 9, 30 to 37. I've also been recording ahead of time several of these because I will be out this summer for about a month, and so uh, I'm recording uh, (laughs) episodes for June and July right now, which kind of gets my head spinning a little bit. Time is a funny thing, but those episodes that I've done, I've, I've recorded three of them so far, and they are all longer. They're all around 30 minutes, or maybe even a little more than 30, so I think I'm going to make this one a little bit shorter if that's that's just my intention. I don't know if that's what will happen. But let's go ahead and look at Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 30. It says, From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. All right. Sorry, a little context. We're talking about Jesus and his disciples. Okay. Going through Galilee. If you want to know where Galilee is, just... Uh, Google search, Bible map, time of Jesus. There are all kinds of maps out there, and they're all usually good. Uh, Many of them are really, really helpful. So there you go. Jesus, his disciples going through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anybody to know about it. All right, verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed... He will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me 
does not receive me, but him who sent me. Pretty amazing passage, a lot to look at in just a few verses. Uh, you'll, you'll notice about Mark, if you read through the Gospel of Mark, that he is just kind of a to-the-point kind of guy. His audience was Romans. Uh, Roman people were the ones he was writing to to explain the life of Jesus. His favorite word, it seems, in his gospel is immediately. It comes up a lot in the gospel, though I don't think it's in our passage today. Immediately, immediately, immediately. Mark was like in a hurry. His audience was like the kind of the type of people that is always in a hurry. And so he just kind of lays it all out there really quickly. <laughs> uh, for instance, in our passage today in verse 33, they came to C- Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, it says. Well, why were they in Capernaum? What house were they in? How did they get in? Were there other people there besides the disciples? I mean, you just have all these questions, but Mark just says this is what was going on, just to the point, all right? Which, you know, you can appreciate that about Mark. It's cool that the different gospel writers were were different. They had different styles, and they were writing to different audiences, and they had different purposes for including or not including certain things. That's pretty cool. But uh, what's cooler than all of that is this statement that we have from Jesus in verse 31, where he was teaching the disciples that he, the Son of Man, was to be delivered into the hands of men to be killed. It says, they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. How could Jesus make this statement? How could Jesus say such a thing? This isn't the only time he said such a thing, actually. Uh, Multiple times he told his disciples this was going to happen to him. He would be killed, and he would rise from the dead three days later. Well, how could Jesus make that statement? The first answer to that is that Jesus had perfect knowledge of these events that were going to take place in the future. Now, we know that Jesus, in his earthly body, during his earthly ministry, in his humanity, did not have perfect knowledge of all future events. Remember, there's that passage. I don't know how many times I brought this up in this series. I feel like I've mentioned it multiple times lately, but maybe it's been in other contexts. There's the passage where Jesus says he's going to return, and concerning his return, the day or the hour of his return, nobody knows, not even the Son, only the Father knows the day or the hour. So there's a way in his humanity, in his emptying, setting aside certain divine prerogatives, there's an example of how Jesus did not know all future events comprehensively. However, this future event, his death and resurrection, he did know perfectly that it was going to happen. And and you could even say with the second coming passage, he knew with certainty he would return again, right? I mean, he, he just knew that he would come again to earth, there would be a second coming. The day and the hour, he didn't know. Well, this, he knew that he would be killed by uh, those in society who were against him. He would be put to death, and he would rise three days later. He knew it would be three days later. So he had this knowledge, this ability uh, to, to know that this would happen. Yet there's also a link here, uh, when, as we're thinking about how Jesus could say this, or, or why he, he could say it, that this whole thing was prophesied, too. 
In Isaiah 53, sometimes referred to as the fifth gospel, in addition to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have Isaiah, which was written 700 years before them. And in Isaiah, it talks about in pretty straightforward detail that this Messiah would be given over uh, to those who hated him and would kill him. He, and, and it would be done in a, a substitutionary way. He wouldn't be suffering for his own sins and his own faults, but he would be suffering in the place of other sinners, or, or of sinners, rather, because Jesus himself isn't a sinner. He would be suffering in the place of sinners. It says in Isaiah 53 that he was bruised for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The, the punishment that brings us peace as sinners fell upon him, the only one who, the only human who has never sinned. So um, this suffering is substitutionary and it would happen. The Messiah would be killed. And it goes on to say in that Isaiah 53 passage in verse 10 that God would prolong his days. He would see his offspring after he would be killed as a guilt offering. So there's death and resurrection right there in Isaiah 53. You also have Psalm 16.10, which says God will not allow his Holy One to see decay. You have in the book of Job this, uh, you could say it's a prophecy, though this one's a little more difficult to directly tie to these events, where Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. So there you go. Um, You've got in the Old Testament passages about the resurrection, and you have a lot more that are about the death of Christ. And Psalm 22 talks about how dogs have surrounded me, they've pierced my hands and my feet. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. So um, a lot in the Old Testament that was prophesied about this, and when there is a prophecy about future events, it's certain. When it's God who is making, issuing this prophecy, this um, communication about what is going to happen, you can be absolutely certain that it will happen. There is no other way it could be. For instance, uh, Judas, it was said in Zechariah that there's going to be one who will betray the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. There will be a, a guy who is a traitor, and he's a traitor for 30 pieces of silver, and Judas did that, and he had to do that so the Scripture would be fulfilled. There was no other way that history was going to play out. But Judas was going to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver in accordance with prophecy. There's absolute certainty there. And we can... Look in the Old Testament and um, Numbers 23.19, where it says this of God, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? These are hypothetical questions, of course, with an obvious answer. If God has said it, he's going to do it. If he's spoken, he's going to make it good. He's not a man that he would lie. He's, I mean, when, when you think of, uh, of mankind, one thing you can be pretty well certain of is that every single person has either lied or bent the truth or what, however you want to phrase it to make it sound better. I'll just say lie. Every man has lied at some point in his life. But God's not a man that he would go on to lie. May God be found true, though every man is a liar, it says in the book of Romans. Every man. But God's not a man. He doesn't lie. He's not a son of man that he would repent or change his mind. 
If he says that something's going to happen, it's going to happen. And so Jesus could say with confidence during his earthly ministry that he was going to be killed because Scripture was explicit that this was going to happen to the suffering servant. The Messiah was going to die and rise again. And he was going to rise again three days later. But another reason why Jesus would say this or could say this is that this was his whole purpose of coming to earth. So Father and Son and Spirit have so planned out the salvation, given salvation as a gift to mankind, with with each person of the Godhead fulfilling certain roles. Where Jesus, from all time and eternity, there's been this plan that he would be the Lamb slain. I mean, it says that in the New Testament, that Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the, the earth. So this has always been a part of the plan, that Jesus would come to earth for the purpose of dying and rising from the dead. This has been uh, in the mind of God eternally, that he would be glorified through the redeeming of mankind, a people for his own name, for the praise and honor of his name, through the death and resurrection of the Son. So Jesus was, was in on this. He's been dwelling in glory from all eternity, and it's not like the Father had this plan, and then Jesus was going to discover it as time went along. No, no, no. Jesus is God, just as the Father is God and the Spirit is God. And from all eternity, this plan has been in place. And so Jesus knew, as he came to earth, that this is what had to happen, that he would be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, purchasing salvation, and that he would rise from the dead, proving that he is who he said he was. And so that's how Jesus is able to say that in our passage today, in Mark chapter 9, that the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, absolute certainty. And then, when he's been killed, he will rise three days later. Now, we're told here in verse 32 that the disciples did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. That's understandable. I get that. Uh, the disciples, especially as you know, students of the Old Testament, they saw an emphasis on God's worldwide kingdom, that the Messiah would come, he would be the conquering king, sitting on the throne of David, putting to death their enemies, establishing his kingdom, restoring uh, to Israel all that the holy prophets had spoken. That was like the focus that they saw in the Old Testament. They saw like an emphasis on that throughout the Old Testament. And so when Jesus comes along as their Messiah, here they are following him as disciples. They were believing in him at least to a certain degree, right, that they would leave their fishing hole, and that they, they would go over and follow him. They didn't really understand whenever he said, well, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise from the dead three days later. They're thinking, no, man's not going to kill you. You're going to kill them and establish your kingdom, right? But as Jesus would say, uh, slow of heart and slow to hear all that the prophets have said. Because it's not just in the Old Testament that you have the talk about a kingdom. You also have talk in the Old Testament, as I was just explaining, about the suffering of the Messiah and the rising from the dead. Now, the prophets, they made inquiries. This is uh, in Second Peter? First Peter. First Peter, chapter 1, I think. Maybe it's Second Peter 1. I think it's First Peter 1, but I'm kind of having a 
a moment in my brain right now where I'm not remembering, where Peter tells us that the prophets from long ago, they made inquiries into these prophecies as they were being led by the Spirit to, to issue prophecies. They were wondering who these prophecies were about and at what time these prophecy, prophecies would be fulfilled. They were not given that information. And so it, it really takes the playing out of history to understand there will be two comings of Christ and there will be this church that Christ is building in between. That's kind of, that's like a mystery, the, the New Testament says, where that part wasn't really revealed in the Old Testament. Uh, but it was revealed that the, the servant, the Messiah, would suffer and die and rise from the dead. They're, they just didn't see that emphasis. They, they didn't they didn't uh, grasp the weight of that, these disciples of Jesus. They didn't uh, understand how significant that was. They were only seeing the kingdom. There's going to be this physical earthly kingdom, which there will be, but they were just seeing that. And they didn't embrace this idea that the Messiah would die and rise from the dead, and at his second coming, he would kill their enemies and establish his kingdom. So they were confused, and they were afraid to ask. And I think just from a human perspective, that's understandable, okay? Now, what comes next to me is not so understandable. When they get to this house in Capernaum, Jesus questioned them, what were you discussing on the way? And he knew the answer, but he asked them anyway. And they kept silent because turns out on the way there, they were discussing which one of them was the greatest, this is something the disciples did a lot. They would talk to each other about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom that's to come or or who's the greatest now or whatever. Now, that's not as understandable. That's just them being prideful, inward-focused, selfish. This is the ugliness of sin. I mean, that's just not good. So um, neither one of these things are great that they didn't understand that Jesus would suffer and die, and that they were discussing who's the greatest. I mean, neither one of those things are very good. But I think the first one is more understandable, at least, than the second. The second one is just the disciples being so prideful. And so Jesus teaches them, and notice here in our text, they never give an answer. They kept silent, right? It says in verse 34, they kept silent. But then um, Jesus, because he knew what they were talking about, he sits down, I love this, he, he grabs a seat, and then he calls the 12 over to him. Okay, gather around, youngins, right? I, I'm just going to teach you because I, I know what you were talking about, and you probably know that I know, all right? So he gives them this lesson, this great lesson. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. The way to exaltation that Jesus is, is offering here, the way to exaltation is through humble service, not making a name for yourself. The earthly way of exalting yourself is not the way to actually exalt yourself. Kind of like when Jesus told Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. He's saying that his kingdom is, does not have roots in earth, like the way earthly kingdoms do. Now, he will have a kingdom that will be heaven on earth, um, a kingdom that has been inaugurated, that will be fulfilled in this realm. But it's not of this realm. He, he, his kingdom doesn't originate in the same way that man's kingdoms originate. 
His kingdom is not of this world. It's not of worldly principles. All right. So when Jesus says, if you want to be exalted, you're not, you're not going to be exalted through earthly means. What he's saying is you are going to be exalted through humbling, being last, being a servant, not by seeking a name for yourself. And he gives them a, just like a living illustration here. He um, gives them that statement. If anyone wants to be first, he should be last and servant of all. And in verse 36, he takes a child. So there are other people in the house, apparently. Jesus grabs a seat in the house, and he grabs a child who's nearby. (laughs) And he sets the child before them, taking the child in his arms. Beautiful scene, isn't it? And then he says to them this additional statement. Verse 37, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So as he grabs this child and sets the child before the disciples, he's giving them again a living illustration that whoever is humble enough to receive a child is going to receive Christ himself. And it takes humility for a grown man to receive a child. How many times have you seen a group of 13 guys hanging out and one of them grabs a child, takes him into his arms, holds him for fun or just for an illustration, just to love on him in front of the guys? <laughs> I mean, guys haven't changed that much. You know, I know this is two, we're 2,000 years removed from this event, but how much do you think men have changed? Uh, I'd say there's a lot that's the same. And then, like now, you don't really have a group of guys who are out on their own, traveling through the wilderness, being tough guys, uh, just living off the land and out on their own, away from their wives, away from their children, away from lots of stuff. And then, you know, they'll grab a random child and hug on them. (laughs) It just doesn't happen, right? Well, Jesus here is saying, look what I'm doing. This is humility, to receive a child, to minister to a child. Those who are unable to like pay you back, those who are unable to help you advance in society, those who are unable to lift up your name and exalt you among your fellow man, um, those who are like a nuisance to grown men, if we're being perfectly honest, right? A grown man looks at a child and is like, ugh, man, just go away. I know I've had that thought many times, like, ugh, just you're too loud, you're annoying me with all your questions, go away. Jesus here is saying, true humility is displayed in receiving a child in Jesus's name. And when you do that, you receive Jesus, you receive Christ himself. But it takes humility, that's his whole point, is that you have to be humble. This is the way to exaltation. This is the way to being great in the kingdom. Who's the greatest? The one who's last of all and servant of all, even servant of a servant of children. That is true humility, someone who's serving even children. And then Jesus gives this assurance and says, uh, whoever receives one child like this and my name receives me and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So whoever receives him doesn't receive him alone, but receives the Father also is the, the teaching here. But it takes humility the humility to receive a child. Uh, in fact, uh, Jesus really, really cared about children. Later on in Mark chapter 9, Jesus taught 
down in verse 42, that whoever causes one of the little ones to stumble, or sorry, whoever causes one of the little ones who believes in Jesus to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. So those who cause children to stumble, well, that's not good. Uh, Jesus says that person is going to be judged and judged harshly. Someone who causes a child to stumble by teaching the child false religion, by taking a child away from pure and undefiled religion, by taking a child away from the Word of God, by sexualizing a child. We see a lot of that in our society today. Whatever the case may be, someone doing that to a child is going to be judged harshly. Yet true humility is evidenced by someone who receives such a child and ministers to a child and cares for that child in Jesus' name. Okay? Well, that's uh, the lesson from Mark 9. I thought this was going to be shorter, but here we are at about 25 minutes. Well, sorry about that, but I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you got something out of it and uh, understand a little bit more about true humility. That humility, of course, is what is required to receive Jesus in the gospel. You cannot receive the good news if you deny that you need good news. You are so desperate in your natural state Your sin has so overcome your heart and plagued you, corrupted you, polluted your soul, that you are lost and without hope in the world apart from believing in Jesus Christ and understanding and embracing the biblical gospel. So today, if you have not believed in Jesus Christ, would you? Would you receive Jesus with humility and then watch what he does with your life? Something to think about. Thanks for joining me today, and God bless.